Hey, well today, super big treat, all right, for all of you. So um, I'm not going to speak this morning. I'm getting excited for next week because next week we're starting a brand new sermon series um, that we're going to be in through November. And then by, that, by the time we're done, it's going to be Advent time. It's going to be Christmas time. Uh, it's here upon us. But we're starting a new sermon series next week, and this is what it's going to be. Ready? This is what it's called. It's called Keep It Weird, all right? And it's going to be a sermon series on love, marriage, sex, and, and singleness, all right? Some of my favorite topics to talk about. In fact, I think I'm at my best when I'm talking about those topics. Um, no, stop giggling. The middle schoolers left, okay? They're in the other room. Um, so, so I can't wait to, to launch into that with you next week. So super helpful, no matter what st- stage of life you're in. Um, that's where we'll be starting next week, so you do not want to miss that. Um, and today, we have a special guest. So in a second, don't come up yet, Gary, but I just want to introduce you to one of my favorite people um, here, Gary Matzdorf. Listen, listen, I've been trying to get Gary to come speak at Westside for a long time, but he's a, he's a busy guy, and he's, and he's serving in lots of different capacities, and so he's gone a lot, but he, happens to, he just happened to be able to be here today. Here's what you got to know about Gary. Is, uh, Gary has been uh, in Foursquare ministry for over 40 years. He was a senior pastor for over a decade in Medford, Oregon, and then after that, he was an executive pastor in Billings, Montana at a great church there called Faith Chapel. Currently, he is the global education coordinator for our Foursquare movement. So here's what this means, is that he gets to travel around for Foursquare, and he gets to start institutes in all these different countries everywhere. He was just in Australia last week. He's going to Barbados this next week uh, to, uh, to train pastors and to equip leaders and, uh, and, to, uh, and to just ensure that Foursquare is doing a great job of just of releasing new leaders in this next generation, and he's passionate about that. He's also a professor at New Hope Christian College, where, where I also get to, get to be an adjunct professor, um, which, and also he's been voting by the student's favorite professor for the past couple years, a title that I am trying to overtake. One of these years, maybe it'll happen for me. Um, He and his wife, Velda, they've been married for 44 years, and they have two adult sons and four grandchildren. Um, Last few things, he likes long walks on the beach. His favorite movie is Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. And he can leap tall buildings in a single bound. I totally made up those last three. Would you, and would you welcome Gary Matzdorf as he comes? Thanks, friend. Well, good morning. Thanks, Brooks, for the introduction. Uh, I can remember when Ace Ventura came out. My boys loved it. So... Um, It's a great privilege to be here. As Brooks said, I have the privilege of traveling about 225 or 30,000 miles a year for our denomination, visiting literally every continent except Antarctica. And uh, now I get to be here with you, which is a great privilege uh, for me. My wife's uh, visiting family in Los Angeles. She says, if you're going to Barbados, I'm going somewhere. So... um, Uh, She sends her greetings. This morning, I want to um, talk about a person whose life was radically changed because he was invited to dinner by the king. And at that dinner, something significant happened to him by way of an encounter with God through the king. It's a story about God's unfailing love that is shown from one person to another. 
and the transformation that that made on a very hurting individual when we first meet him. Now, before we dive into it, a couple of things for you to think of. First of all, I'd like you to think perhaps of a time when you sensed God's unfailing love towards you in a rather extraordinary way. My guess is that there are those of you in this room who've experienced that. I'd also like you to think perhaps of a time when you desperately needed to sense God's unfailing love, and for some reason, you didn't. It seemingly wasn't there when you needed it. And lastly, I'd like you to think of perhaps of a time when a person, an actual person, a flesh and blood human being, showed you God's unfailing love in some capacity, and it had a radical impact on you through the community of God's people. Old Testament scholars tell us that the concept of God's unfailing love is the key to understanding the Old Testament, believe it or not. We oftentimes think of the Old Testament in terms of judgment, but scholars say you cannot understand the Old Testament if you don't understand this concept of God's unfailing love. Psalm 21 says, the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, we will not be shaken. Psalm 52 says, I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. And it's interesting to me that when Moses asked God for a self-description, here's how God described himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in unfailing love and faithfulness. That was his description of himself to Moses. It defines his loyalty to the covenant obligations he's uh, uh, made to us. Is God's unfailing love means you can trust him to do what he says he will do. One way you can look at it really is that it's being stubborn in a good way. All of us know how to be stubborn. My wife reminds me on occasion of how I can be stubborn. God's unfailing love is his stubborn commitment to do what he says he will do. It's motivated by his love, by his goodness, by his care, by his kindness, by his mercy. We saw in Psalm 21 that that unfailing love shown to us should stabilize us. When life's falling apart, it has a way of stabilizing us. And I love Psalm 119.41. It says, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord. May we just be willing to invite it into our lives. But there's an interesting thing about experiencing the unfailing love of God, and that's really what I want to emphasize this morning. And that is one of the reasons he wants us to experience it is it should motivate us to treat other people with unfailing love, with a sense of care, commitment, goodness, and mercy. Now, if you have a Bible, and I teach millennials, I often have to show them this is a Bible, okay? If you have a Bible, or you have your phone or iPad, invite you to uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 9, because I want to read a passage from 2 Samuel 9 in a moment. 
But before we do, if you could indulge me for a few moments to kind of put on my professor hat, I want to set some context for what we're going to read this morning because I think if we understand the context, what I'm about to read will have more impact on us. In history, we're about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, if you can imagine that time frame in human history. We're in the land of ancient Israel, and her king at that time was the famous King David. He has recently succeeded Israel's first king, Saul, who, as most of you in the room know, came to see him as a bitter enemy, trying on several occasions to kill David. Now, several years before the event that we're about to read uh, happened, during the time when Saul was trying to kill David, one of Saul's sons by the name of Jonathan and David became BFFs. That's what they were. And because they were best friends, Jonathan made a request of David, knowing that David was going to be the king eventually and could have his family killed as a part of the previous dynasty. Here's the request he made of his friend. He said, David, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, and don't ever cut off your kindness from my family. That was his request to him. Show me the kind of unfailing love you've experienced from God. Please don't ever cut that off from my family. Now, by the time we get to 2 Samuel 9, which, believe me, we are in a moment, it would have been understandable, in my opinion, if David had forgotten about that promise. Because it's years later, Jonathan's dead, who would have known? He could have forgotten about it, he could have ignored it. But because God's unfailing love had come to him, and he had experienced it and seen his enemies defeated and his throne secure and his empire established. And because he wanted to be a man of his word who passed on the unfailing love that he experienced to other people, we have the event that we're about to read about that was sparked years before by a promise between two really good friends. One final detail, and then I promise you I'll read it. We're going to encounter in this story one of Jonathan's sons by the name of Mephibosheth. His father and his grandfather, King Saul, were killed in battle when he was five years old. And when they were killed, his nanny feared for his life. And she grabbed him and she was running with him to hide him and protect him. And while she was running with him, either he fell or she dropped him. And he became permanently disabled. The Bible said he was lame in both feet. He was a cripple. His name, interestingly enough, have no clue why dad and mom gave him the name Mephibosheth. It means from the mouth of shame. And... We are going to find him living in a city called Lodebar, which means a barren place. So here's a man who's been crippled since five years old. His name means from the mouth of shame, he's living in a barren place. He's been lying low for fear of what the king might do to him, because now he's a young man. He has been living, as we'll see in a moment, a very shameful existence with a very low self-esteem. 
and in comes the king. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. David asked, is there anyone still left of the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodebar. So King David had him brought from Lodebar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. I want to make a couple of observations and then ask a couple of simple questions as we look at this story this morning. My first observation is I've lived long enough to believe that Mephibosheth's story is often our story. We are people who are injured, we suffer trauma, we suffer disappointment, Circumstances come along over which we have no control that affect our lives. I know we create our own messes at times, but the truth of the matter is life at times affects us despite everything we do. You got to remember he was five years old when his father died and he was dropped or he fell under the care of a loving nanny and he became permanently disabled. He'd been given an unfortunate name from the mouth of shame, which apparently took a toll on his self-identity because he called himself a dead dog, which was culturally a term of self-abasement. It's like viewing yourself as a piece of you-know-what. His physical location of living in a barren place, I think, undoubtedly metaphorically symbolized the kind of life he was living right now when he thought he would be in a palace and that his dad would be the king upon the death of his grandfather. Life took a turn he was not expecting. And I think that same story, unfortunately, oftentimes happens to us. My second observation is that David's initiation of kindness towards Mephibosheth, I think mirrors the kind of initiation God takes to us. All of this, did you notice? All of this starts with David. He had absolutely no obligation 
as the king in that culture to Saul's descendants. But he had made a promise to his friend Jonathan and he had experienced the kindness of God. So he said, how can I be selfish? How can I keep that kindness to myself? He says in verse one, is there anyone still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? To me, that very question, church, has God written all over it. Reminds me of the famous Romans 5.10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When we didn't deserve it, God took the initiative to do something good on our behalf. My final observation has to do with the word Mephibosheth received from the king. Because I think the words to Mephibosheth also mirror God's word to us. I think God talks to us, wants to talk to us, like the king talked to Mephibosheth. He said to him, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness. I'm here to tell you, contextually, culturally, when he got that summons to come and see the king, he had absolutely no reason to be confident not only were his individual circumstances difficult, but being member, a member of an overthrown royal dynasty in that day was not necessarily a confidence builder in him. He undoubtedly knew that King David had had seven of his relatives killed in revenge for something that Saul had done to a neighboring tribe of the Gibeonites. But when he comes in, David wants to calm him down and assure him they're friends. He says in verse 7 as well, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Out of his mouth, after he says, don't be afraid, come words of healing and restoration and rebuilding to a broken young man who probably had to be physically be carried into the room. He says to him, you will always eat at my table speaking to him words of belonging, bringing Mephibosheth from a place of barrenness and one of insignificance where he called himself a dead dog to one who ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And finally, he says to him, Mephibosheth will always eat at my table, meaning that the king wanted him confident that this was not just a band-aid or a temporary fix. He was not being teased. He was being given a lifelong provision to be at the king's table. And then he said, Ziba, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. See, he knew Mephibosheth couldn't take care of that land that he was giving to him. But he made sure to send people to help him as a part of his ongoing journey of restoration because he was disabled and unable to do it. I think the king was acting a whole lot like God and a whole lot like we need to perceive God to be. And so this morning... I just want to close by asking a few simple questions of you 
for some personal reflection about how God wants to treat you and me. Before I do, though, I want to tell you a little story from my own experience. This happened when I was pastoring in Medford, and the church was going through a rather difficult time. Brooks would know this, but you have to be a pastor to really understand that when the church isn't doing well, you're not doing well. Now, you say to me, it probably shouldn't be that way. Great, pray for me. But it is that way. There's that connection. And I was praying one day to the Lord and pouring out to him my frustration and my pain. And to my mind came the story from the Gospels where the woman with the issue of blood reached out to touch Jesus' garment in her desperation for healing. And when she touched his garment, she was healed. And in my mind's eye, I reached out to touch the garment of Jesus Christ, and he jerked on it, and he said, who's touching me? Get off of me. And I thought to myself, I am in trouble. I'm in more trouble than the church is in if my perception of God is that I'm like a pain in the butt to him and he wants to jerk me off of his robe rather than heal me. And this morning, while I ask the questions, I beg you, don't push God away. Don't think of him as a bother. Don't think, oh, lucky Mephibosheth, but that'll never be me. Just allow God as I read a few more closing scriptures, just minister to you like the king ministered to this crippled young man. First, for any in the room that might be afraid of someone or something, like Mephibosheth undoubtedly was when he came in, I'd like you to hear the words of Jesus the king when the disciples saw him walking on the water and were scared out of their minds because they thought he was a ghost. He said, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. In other words, he was saying, I'm here. Nothing may change for a while, that's just a reality, but I'm here. And to those of you that would be here this morning and perhaps afraid of someone or something, I think Jesus the King wants to say, I'm here. Take courage. Maybe you're here this morning and God needs to begin some sort of a restoration process. Maybe it's a restoration of your sense of self-value. Maybe it's a restoration of a fractured relationship. Maybe it's the restoration of your life following a divorce or a death or a disappointment because you didn't get a job. Maybe a friend betrayed you. Any number of life circumstances could be represented in this room this morning. And I, from the bottom of my heart, would like you to hear the words of God the King to you. When it says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's a promise to you, to me, built on the nature of God. The God of unfailing love, the God of care, who is called the God of all comfort in another scripture, promises to restore. 
And the difficulty that we experience is not an indication of rejection by God. It doesn't mean we're left on our own to make it the best, to kind of pull ourselves up by the spiritual bootstraps. We have a destiny of restoration whereby he brings order out of chaos, hope, strength, and support out of despair, and character out of brokenness. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel alone or abandoned, in need of a place of belonging and provision. You know, there's a very famous little, simple little scripture in Exodus where God says, I am who I am. It's really unfortunate that, not, that I'm assuming most of us in the room can't read Hebrew because if we could read Hebrew, we would see a little bit of deeper significance in that statement, Hebrew being the original language in which it was written. Here's what it, God is really saying. He says, I pledge myself to be there with you and for you with all the provision and power I have to offer. I'm going to like nail my feet to the floor, God says, next to you, and I'm going to bring with you everything I represent. And he doesn't come just to bring a temporary fix, but like David saw to Mephibosheth's long-term restoration, God promises to hang in there with us until you and I gain a different perspective when we feel alone or abandoned. We are hard-pressed, Paul said to the Corinthians, on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. He's reflecting off the character and determination of God. And finally, we got to remember we're not in this alone. We're members of community. And the greatest answer to the situation you're facing this morning might be sitting in this room. And we always need to remember that and take advantage of that. Paul said to the Galatians, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, the king summoned Ziba and his family to take care of Mephibosheth because Mephibosheth couldn't take care of himself. And that happens to us on occasion. I want to thank you this morning for the opportunity just to share about the unfailing love of God. And you know what? As you come, Brooks, a lot of you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot of scholars think that when Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, he had 2 Samuel 9 in mind. And in that parable, a man is robbed, stripped of his clothes, beaten, left half dead. And along comes this other person, takes pity on him, goes to him, bandages his wounds, puts him on a donkey, brings him to an inn, takes care of him, pays for it. And you know what? I'm convinced that that robbed and beaten and stripped and half-dead person is Mephibosheth. It's me. It's us. And God is that good Samaritan, often using real live Samaritans around us to bandage us up and take care of us. God bless.